Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Jeff Yulden. I want to talk to you today about the sanctuary. And I hope you've got your Bibles because there's quite a number of references we want to turn up. And this is such an important subject to us as Seventh-day Adventists. It's, it's something which makes us very different to other churches, um, our understanding of the sanctuary. And it's important that we understand the, the deeper meaning. And I'm not just talking about the, the furniture. That's, that's important, very important. That's, that's what we would term a basic understanding of the sanctuary. But also it has wider implications, as we heard in our lineage today. Um, it's interesting that the Seventh-day Baptist church that arose before Seventh-day Adventists, and, of course, we have in common with the Seventh-day Baptists the Sabbath. Um, and... Um, it's just interesting to to notice that we we began after them. If you have a look at their numbers worldwide, you'll find that there's about 50,000 of them in all the years from 1844 and, and the development of the Adventist Church. The Seventh-day Baptists are still only, I think, less than 50,000 worldwide. At the same time, Seventh-day Adventists are up around 26, 27 million. And you say, well, why is the difference? We both have the Sabbath and, um, and we, we uh, share many positive things together. Why the difference? Well, I believe that the difference is that the Seventh-day Baptists didn't never accepted the sanctuary message. They never understood the broadness of, of, of a message that's got to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and the prophetic side of our message. That's why it's very important as, as Seventh-day Adventists that we understand what makes us distinctive and also to be able to defend it in our own minds, to be certain about what we believe. So that's what I want to um, talk to you today a little bit about, and we'll make a start on the subject of the sanctuary. So would you open your Bibles if you have them, and I hope you have, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. Now, this verse is well known to those of us who have been around the church for, for a while because uh, we often quote it. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. And says, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Now, the interesting thing is, I mean, this is a startling. If, if you'd never read this before, you would be absolutely startled to think that war didn't begin on this earth. That would be our natural reaction among human beings. But the Bible says that war began in heaven. 
Now, what that immediately says to me is that sin is not just an earthly problem. The sin problem is a universal problem. It, it began not on this earth. It began way, way in the past in heaven. Therefore, when we come to the sin problem, there is more to it than just understanding what Jesus has done for us because we are part of the sin problem, but the sin problem is universal. And, and that's a very important point to understand in our minds because it's going to affect some of the conclusions and some of the understandings of what the Bible says on the subject of what has been referred to as the great controversy or the war that's going on between good and evil. Let's have a look at verse, um, as, as we read now, verse 8, the next verse, Revelation 12, it says, and they did not prevail, that is, Satan and his angels did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a voice, a loud voice, saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore, John says, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. So here we have in just a few verses an understanding of the great controversy, the war that's going on between Christ and Satan. It began in heaven, but now this earth is involved. And when we read this verse where it says he was cast down to the earth, some folk have gotten the idea that God said, well, you've got to go somewhere, get away from my backyard and go down to the earth. And we were the bunnies that had to, uh, to accept him. That's not what happened at all. This is a very brief report of the whole story that took many, many, many long years. How many years? We don't know, but a long time. And the only reason that Satan was cast out to this earth is because this earth was the only beings, Adam and Eve, were the beings that listened to him and invited him in. All the other Adam and Eves of all the other worlds um, didn't accept him. And that's why it says here that they are to rejoice. You know, verse 12, when it says, therefore, O heavens, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So there's a very clear reference to the fact that there are other inhabited worlds in the universe beside ours. And woe to the inhabitants of the earth. So um, the book of Job is the clearest indication in the Bible of these other worlds. So just come back to Job chapter 1. Now, Job is in the middle of the Bible near Psalms. So if you go back and find Psalms in Job, 
is the book before that, Job chapter 1 and verse 6, and we'll read these verses together. Job chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, that is all the other Adams, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Because he knew he wasn't one of the other, uh, representing the other worlds. So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. In other words, he was there as the representative of us, of our world. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? In other words, wait on Satan, you're not to be representing the earth at all. You haven't considered my servant Job. That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Ah, there's a, there's a reason why Job is faithful to you. What is it? Verse 10, have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. In other words, Satan was saying, very easy to understand because you have blessed him. Of course, he's going to be loyal to you because of what he gets out of you. And that was the argument that Satan was using against Job. And so Satan made accusations against the Lord and before the onlooking sons of, of uh, all the other worlds. And the unfallen beings of all the other worlds were witnesses to this conflict and tension. So the first thing we've got to understand is that sin is a problem that did not, did not arise on this earth but arose somewhere else in the universe. And uh, Satan is making accusations, certain accusations against God. That's the first two things that are important for us to understand, that sin didn't originate on the earth, and secondly, that Satan accuses God and he's made accusations against God. Then the story, as we read in Revelation 12, shifts from heaven down to this earth, and we find now the conflict which began in heaven comes down to, to the earth, and that's how you and I have become involved in it. So the conflict began in another part of the universe but is being played out on this earth. Let's now go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9, and we get more of a picture through what Paul says about this great controversy, this war that's going on. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9 says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last. As men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The whole universe is interested and they're spectators. They're looking as to what is going on in, in the earth today. Let me read you a statement from um, Patriarchs and Prophets because this statement is very uh, insightful. This is what it says. The plan of redemption 
had a yet broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man. All right? What she's saying here is that the plan of salvation involves more than man. In fact, it's even much bigger than your salvation and mine. It was not for this alone that Christ came to this earth. It was not merely that the inhabitants on this little world might regard the law of God as it should be regarded, but it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. So what's the primary reason that Jesus came to this earth? It wasn't just to save us. Wonderful it is. I'm just so grateful to the Lord that he was able to vindicate his character before the onlooking universe and save us at the same time. But the primary reason for Jesus coming onto this earth to die for us wasn't only to save us. Now, that may seem a little bit uh, new to some of us, but it's very true because once we understand the broader picture of this great controversy, then we begin to understand that there's something bigger involved than our salvation. Important, of course, we regard that as being important because it's us. But as far as the universe is concerned, there's something much, much bigger because Satan made certain accusations against God before the whole universe. And he brought up questions about God's government, his fairness. He brought up questions about his law and, and, and justice. And therefore, when Jesus came to this earth, he came to vindicate. What does that word mean? That's a big word. The word vindicate. It means to clear up, to, to make known, to, and, and to show that um, the person is, is, or in this case it was Christ. If you're vindicated before the law, before the courts, that means they regard it as you, that you didn't do it. And um, so um, Christ came to vindicate the character of God. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, were all the questions regarding God's character resolved? Now, this is another important question for you to think about. When Jesus died on the cross, were all the questions that the universe would have had in their minds cleared up at that particular point? Or was there more yet to clear up before the universe? Did Christ's death clearly answer all of those questions. Well, let me read you what uh, Alan White says. This is from Desire of Ages, page 760. There stood men formed in the image of God, joining to crush out the life of his only begotten son. What a sight for the heavenly universe. You just imagine their creator and, and their watching what's going on on the earth, and here mankind is uh, is attacking Christ and, and doing all the dreadful things that were done at the time of his uh, death and crucifixion. Then she goes on to say on the next page, Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself 
from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. In other words, up until the death of Jesus, there was still some sympathy for Satan's position and his accusations. And it wasn't until the whole point of what Satan was about, which was revealed at the death of Christ and how he attacked Christ and, 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 and what he did to Christ, when the universe saw that, his last sympathies were forever taken away. Then she goes on to say in the next paragraph, yet Satan was not then destroyed. You know, I've had so many people in, 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 in evangelistic meetings. Why didn't God kill the devil as soon as he sinned? Well, here's the answer. Yet Satan was not then destroyed. The angels did not even then understand all that was involved. So even when Jesus was died on the cross, he's saying here that the universe still didn't understand everything about sin and what was involved. In, in, and uh, so she says the angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed. And for the sake of men, Satan's existence must be continued. Man, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. So here we have some very interesting points that God has revealed to us, that the universe, the beings on these other worlds, the angels, still at the death of Jesus didn't understand everything in the great controversy. There needed to be some more things done. There needed to be more time given. That's why, primarily why, the devil wasn't destroyed then. Let's go over to Ephesians now, a little bit further on after Corinthians, the book of Ephesians, chapter 3 and verse 10. This is such an important verse that um, for us to understand because it helps us in our um, appreciation. This is Ephesians chapter 3. And verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Now, this verse is interesting because what it's saying, what Paul is saying here, that the manifold wisdom of God had yet to be revealed in its fullness to the principalities and powers, all the other beings in the universe. And he was going to use the church in order to do that. Now, this is a staggering thought when you uh, analyse what Paul is saying here, that the manifold wisdom of God hadn't yet been fully made known even at the cross because he wanted now to use the church in order to make that manifold wisdom to, uh, to help the universe understand more of the love of God, and that uh, needed to be spread through the universe. Uh, and uh, verse uh, uh, 
11 says, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there are two things that stand out in this verse to me. The first is that 30 years after the cross, that is when Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, 30 years after the cross, all the wisdom of God had not been yet made known to the universe. All right, that's that's another important point that sometimes people have passed over. So even at the cross, the universe still needed to learn some more about the manifold wisdom of God, according to Paul. The second point is this verse says that God is going to use the church in order to make that wisdom known to the universe. Staggering as that thought is, that's exactly what Paul is saying. He's going to reveal it through the church. Now, this doesn't take away anything from the cross. We must be very clear in our minds. I'm not in any shape trying to depreciate what was done at the cross. We can never exaggerate the love of God that was revealed at the cross. Never. We can never say too much about it. Um, All we're saying is that all the questions that the universe had and that Satan had and his fallen angels, all of those questions had not yet been resolved when Jesus died on the cross. That's why God needed more time and he was going to use the church in order to make that wisdom known to the whole universe. Now, I know that there are some Christians, perhaps most Christians, who are very uncomfortable with that thought. I know there are even some Adventists who are uncomfortable with that thought, that that they dislike this emphasis on the church or us as human beings playing a part in and resolving the great controversy. A lot of people just uh, are not comfortable with that thought at all. They emphasise the cross, the cross, the cross, and that's what they preach, and they only ever preach about the cross. And they argue that it was all accomplished at the cross. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is because this has sometimes entered some Adventists' thinking, and they have gained it from a Protestantism. And, and the Reformation. Now, there are so many good things that uh, were discovered in the Reformation, many, many wonderful things that we love as Adventists, but not everything that they discovered was complete. And they, understanding the background from which they had come from the Catholic Church, you can understand why the cross and its teaching was so important to them and why it's important for us too. And um, and it might seem good, but to only talk about the cross and to emphasise that only is to distort the wonderful gospel of Christ because there is more to the gospel than Jesus' death on the cross. Now, does that sound a little bit heretical? It's not because... 
the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross began our salvation, but it didn't finish it, as we're going to explain now. We can never exhaust the love of our Saviour and his death on the cross. And we can never overemphasize what Jesus did on the cross. Never, ever. If we had a lifetime, a, a universal lifetime, eternity, we'll never exaggerate what Jesus did on the cross. But we can overstate what was accomplished at the cross. Let me just say that again. It is possible for us to overstate what Jesus did on the cross. For example, one of the teachings that that these people who preach the cross, the cross, the cross get involved with is once saved, always saved. Now, that's exaggerating what was accomplished at the cross. While Jesus, when he died on the cross, provided salvation for every person potentially in the world, not everybody is saved because not everybody accepts it. So once saved, always saved is a damnable teaching. And then uh, secondly, universalists, they believe that uh, everyone from Cain to Hitler will be saved regardless of what they do or have done. Now, this is attributing too much to what was accomplished at the cross. So in the great controversy, we must be careful that as far as the cross is concerned, that we don't exaggerate what was accomplished at, at the cross as far as the great controversy is concerned. We can never exaggerate what was Jesus did for us on the cross. That is just a, such a wonderful, wonderful truth that is the very foundation of, uh, of our understanding. And it's not until we go to the sanctuary the sanctuary, whether we study that which was put in the wilderness, established in the wilderness, or the heavenly sanctuary today, it's not until we understand, and this is why the study of the sanctuary is so, so important, because God has outlined there to us the totality of understanding the gospel in its entirety. Because in the sanctuary service, there were two important, great truths that um, the sanctuary emphasises. When the, the person confessed their sins and brought an offering along to the sanctuary, that was the beginning. That was the work that the sanctuary began with. Now, that altar of burnt offering, of course, we all understand, represents the death of Jesus. So the death or the, the, the service didn't end with the animal being slain. It started there. So the sanctuary helps us to, to not get too narrow in our focus to understand the broadness of the, of the great controversy story. And depending upon who sinned, and what they did, a ritual went on after the sacrifice of the of the um, sacrifice because you will remember that when the animal was sacrificed, the work of the priest was very important in applying the blood that had been spilt into the sanctuary. And uh, so... When one aspect of Jesus' work was finished, that is, his death on the cross, 
Another aspect of the work of Jesus as our high priest is just as important as his death on the cross. And one one of the burdens of the book of Hebrews is to make it very clear to us that today Jesus is ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. In fact, um, as we open our Bibles, let's come over to Hebrews with me. Hebrews chapter 7, we will read for a start. Hebrews 7 and verse 25. And we find that in the sanctuary there is the same order, the same system that we've been talking about. First of all, Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since. Now, just have a look at this verse clearly. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So this verse is talking about two things. And the reason he can save us to the uttermost through his death is because today he's ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. The two things must go together. They cannot be separated because the work of Jesus administering his blood in the sanctuary shows us that that is just as important as his spilt blood on the cross. It's not saying one is more important than the other. It's saying that both are as vital as one another. So verse um, 25, let's just read it again. It says, therefore, he is also able to save us to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, He's able to save us. Why? Since or because he always lives to make intercession for them. So the reason I can claim the spilt blood of Jesus on the cross as mine is because I have a saviour, our high priest, who is ministering that blood that he spilt in the heavenly sanctuary. Let me read you another verse, chapter 8 of Hebrews, verse 1, it says, now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. In other words, he's been arguing and discussing in Hebrews so far. Now he's saying, I'm going to tell you the main point, the whole central issue here. What is it? We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. So the whole point of Paul's argument here and discussion in Hebrews is to tell us that we have a high priest today in the heavenly sanctuary. And those who want to minimise and talk little about it are are presenting a false gospel if they're only emphasising the death of Jesus because That is the beginning of our salvation, but just as important is the ministry of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. The two things must go together because you can't have one without the other. Jesus' death without his ministry in the sanctuary would avail nothing. And unfortunately, there are many Christians who don't understand anything about the sanctuary. And unfortunately, there are many Seventh-day Adventists who... uh, have well, they've heard it talked about, but don't understand it. And that's why I want to spend a few Sabbaths from time to time on the subject. Have a look at chapter 9 now of Hebrews and verse 11. Hebrews 9 and verse 11, it says, But Christ came as high priest 
of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So it's talking here about the heavenly sanctuary. And there are others, of course, who want to minimize and say that there's no such thing as a heavenly sanctuary. It's not literal. If words mean anything here in the book of Hebrews and Revelation, there is a literal sanctuary in heaven. And Jesus is ministering there today on our behalf. In verse 24 of chapter 9, again he says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, in other words, no human being made this sanctuary, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So the earthly sanctuary was actually a copy of that which is in heaven, of the heavenly sanctuary. Now, the question I would ask is, what do these verses mean if it all finished at the cross? If everything was accomplished at the cross, what's the purpose of the book of Hebrews? What's the purpose of of the book of Revelation? Because as we read through Revelation, Jesus is ministering over and over again. We we read about the articles of furniture in the heavenly sanctuary and the work that Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary. And obviously he is doing something today in the sanctuary that he never accomplished at the cross. And the same is true on earth. The priest had a very different purpose or function than did the animal that was sacrificed. Is that true? In other words, the priest that took the blood of the sacrificed animal and into the, that was a very different work than the animal dying. And remember, the animal dying represents Jesus and the high priest And the priestly work on the heavenly sanctuary represents Jesus. God had to use two figures in order to understand the total work of Jesus. So we need to understand that there are two parts in the sanctuary that we need to basically understand. In understanding the plan of salvation, there is the death and then there is the ministry of the blood in the sanctuary. Let's just go back to Ephesians 3. Back to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 and 11, the verse that we read before that I hope that you will be able to remember. Hebrew, Ephesians, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 10, it says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So God is going to use the church. He's going to use you and me to be faithful in spreading that knowledge and in in enlightening um, men and women of the cross of Christ. That's why the privilege it is ours to, to be a worker together with God, to be an evangelist, and we're all called to be evangelists, to share our faith. And because God is going to use the church and he's going to use you and he's going to use me in order to do that. And we often think that the lamb that was the, 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 the Christ's death on the cross was conceived before the foundation of the world because it says that 
in uh, verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, this verse is saying that not only was Jesus' death conceived way back before the world began, but also the fact that he was going to use human beings, the church, in order to make that manifold wisdom known to the universe, which which gives us a tremendous um, understanding of the importance that God has for each of us. Uh, I was thinking through the week, I uh, saw a little demonstration of of the universe. They were talking about the closest stars and they're talking in, in, in millions of light years. And I began to think about that as we think of the, the distance, the huge universe, and yet Jesus loves us as individuals as if we were the only person that mattered in the entire universe. That is the amazing love of Christ. And that's what the story of the great controversy in the sanctuary helps us to understand the importance that you are regarded by God, the importance that God places on a soul, how important that is. Let's have a look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Ephesians 2 and verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, what does it say? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, God says we are his workmanship and we are created for good works. You know, I meet some people, even some Adventists, who want to play down the importance of works. And uh, this verse says that you and I were created for good works because God wants us to have good works in our life, not as a means of our salvation. We're not meaning that because our salvation is by grace and grace alone. But when God has us, when we come to Christ, he says we are then recreated in the new birth. We are created for good works. And next time we're together, I'm going to talk to you about these good works that God has created us for so that we may um, bring glory and honour to God. You know, a verse that's quoted in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Good works. And then it's the last part of that verse says, and what's the purpose? So that people will uh, talk about us and our accomplishments and, and, and as individuals know, it says to bring glory to God. So the purpose of good works is not to uh, in any way embellish our lives, but rather to bring glory and honour to God. And in these days in which uh, we are living, of the, of the time in which um, we, um, we are, God is wanting you and me to be faithful to him and uh, to, 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 to be able to um, do what he wants us to do so that uh, 
our whole plan. That's why, as a church, we are wanting to move down the plan of of evangelism and our community. We God places upon our hearts a burden when we understand the great controversy, when we understand our part that God is using us. He could have used angels to do the work that he's called us to do, and they would have done a much, much, much better job. But no, he's chosen us because there's also a tremendous blessing as human beings when we get involved in the work of Christ. You ask anybody that's helped to bring someone to Christ, and you will then get that person to tell you of the the joy and the happiness and the thrill that has come into their own life since they've been helping someone else get to know Jesus. That's the reason why good works and, and our missionary work is so important in these last days. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Now, Father in heaven, I just want to thank you again today for the understanding of the great controversy. I thank you, Lord, and we can never thank you enough for what you did for us on the cross and your death on the cross. But equally, Lord, we are very grateful for the fact that you today are interceding on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary and that whoever comes to you through faith, you will accept. And so I pray, Lord, today that you will help us to accept you again as our personal saviour, that you will help us to understand that we're not just here to live a life of 70-odd years or whatever it is, but we're here to share the message that God has uh, written in his word. And so I pray, Lord, that you will lay upon our hearts a burden to do that and that you will uh, help us to have those good works in our lives and that we will bring honour and glory to you. To this end, I pray and thank you again for answering our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was made available by the Stanmore Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit stanmoresdachurch.net.
history's pages signed by him, author of our days and hours, things to come are held secure, heart of angels, Alpha and Omega, God of power, God who breaks the darkness, righteous warrior, champion of his children, goes before us into the was Ben Everson singing God of Heaven. Welcome to our series, You're Not Alone, in which Alan Sonta for many years a missionary educator in the islands of the South Pacific, tells stories that help us to know that God is always watching over us, wherever we are. This episode is entitled, An Angel in Control. Not only does this God who loves us answer us when we call to Him, but because He loves us, when we commit our lives to Him, He will look after us, even when we haven't time to think about what's happening to us. Our story this week comes from Mbutha Bay on the island of Vanulevu in Fiji. At the time, I was in charge of a combined primary and junior secondary boarding school situated on the edge of the bay. The main school grounds occupied a fairly flat triangle of land between two ridges 
that ran down to the edge of the water. Several of the buildings were set close to the lower slopes of the ridges, while others were constructed on flat platforms cut higher up, and these buildings were connected by roads cut into the steep slopes. On one ridge, the road sloped upwards for perhaps 300 metres, and then made a hairpin bend, still rising as it doubled back about 100 metres along the ridge toward a house at the top. Because the area received fairly high rainfall for most of the year, the grass grew quickly, and it was quite a job keeping it under control. We had an old Fordson tractor and a slasher, and one of its tasks was to clean up the edges of the roads. I had taught one of the teachers to drive the tractor, and at the time of our story it had been several months since I had driven the tractor myself, so I was unaware that the brakes were no longer working effectively. On the day of the incident, the teacher, Mazzesi, not his real name, was using the tractor to slash the grass on the edge of the road that had the hairpin bend partway up. He had worked up one side of the road to the top and had started back down on the other side. About 30 metres from the bend, he decided that he should use a higher gear for the downward leg, so he slipped the tractor out of gear. That old tractor did not have a live power takeoff, so the inertia of the slasher blades kept the shaft in the gearbox turning, preventing Mazzesi from getting the tractor back into gear. In his inexperience, he had not realised that this would happen. On the slope, the tractor began to move under its own weight, and with Mazzesi still wrestling with the gear lever, soon picked up speed. Mazzesi pressed his foot as hard as he could on the brakes, but alas, they slowed him not a bit. At this point, Mazzesi was moving slowly enough to have run the tractor into the gutter on the edge of the road and brought it to a stop against the bank. But again, his lack of experience caught him out, and he could think of nothing except keeping the tractor on the road. As he neared the hairpin, he was still moving slowly enough to take the corner so he steered the machine around the sharp bend and was then horrified to see the road stretching out seemingly endlessly down the slope in front of him. The gradient of the lower leg of the road was much steeper than the upper leg, so the tractor rapidly gained speed once the bend had been turned. Too late, Mazzesi realised his mistake. The tractor was out of control and he had no way of stopping it. About 50 metres down from the bend was a large dead tree, just off the road as the bank sloped downwards. Mazzesi decided to aim for the tree, hoping it would bring the tractor to a stop. For some reason, the tractor just wouldn't go where he was trying to steer it, and he missed the tree. Just as well, as it was travelling so fast by now, that if it had hit the tree, there would have been serious damage, and Mazzesi might well have been killed. When he missed the tree, Mazzesi thought to himself, this is where I die. And he shut his eyes and froze on the steering wheel. From that point, he made no attempt to direct the machine. It was about this time that I became aware of the drama unfolding up the hill. I was standing on the main road below, 
near the shore of the bay talking to Sakiusa, a senior teacher. We heard a series of thumps and crashes as the tractor careened down the road. The surface was rather stony and uneven, and as the slasher moved over the ground, the stones caused it to start bouncing. It would leave the ground and then come crashing down several metres further on, only to bounce up again and repeat the action. The faster the tractor moved, the larger the bounces and crashes became. As Yusa and I looked to where the sounds were coming from, we were horrified at what we saw. The speeding tractor with its plunging slasher was bearing down the steep slope, travelling straight for Sakiusa's house, in which his wife was working. The house was near the bottom of the slope, and just above it, the road took a turn of about 45 degrees toward the bank to follow around the base of the ridge. Between the road and the house, there was a small flat garden area before the bank fell away steeply to the house. Any vehicle coming down the road and failing to take the turn would cross the garden and land right on the house. And that was what the tractor appeared certain to do. We stood frozen to the spot as this out-of-control monster bore down upon the house. We didn't have time to shout a warning to Sakuza's wife, and even if we had, there wasn't time for her to get out. The house was built with a light wooden frame and floor, about eight by four metres, with two small rooms. The walls were of plaited bamboo, and the roof was of light corrugated iron. It offered no protection at all, and would be flattened by the weight of the tractor. The tractor came thundering down toward us and began to cross the flat garden area above the house. Then suddenly, for no apparent reason, it turned sharply to the right, toward the bank. This took it back across the road, and with a final plunge, it came to rest in the only spot down the whole ridge where the bank was not just a near vertical wall beside the road. At the point where the tractor dived across the road, there was a shallow basin-like depression between the road and the bank, where the bank seemed to have receded from the road for four or five metres. The final leap brought the tractor to a stop, still upright, with Masesi still in the seat, though stunned and shaken, and the engine still running. The sudden quiet after all the crashing and thundering roused Sakusa and me from our inactivity and we ran up to where the tractor was sitting with the engine slowly turning over, making a ticking noise as the fan tipped the cowling on one side where it had been shaken out of place by the violent jolting of the plunge down the hillside. Mazesi climbed slowly from the seat, almost in a dream. He was obviously dazed and didn't seem to know what he was doing. I reached over and pulled the stop control of the engine, putting an end to the ticking of the fan, and then turned attention to Mazesi. After a while, he seemed to regain his senses, and bit by bit the story came out about the events leading to this near disaster. When Mazesi had settled down, and it seemed clear that he had suffered no real injury, we inspected the tractor and slasher. Incredibly, the front end of the tractor appeared to have suffered only a shaking that had displaced the fan, cowling a couple of centimetres. A bit of a push soon rectified that. At the back, 
the adjustable support for the right-hand arm of the three-point linkage had previously been broken and welded, and this weld had broken. A few minutes in the workshop, and this was repaired. The slasher was undamaged. Despite the fact that the accident had been caused entirely by human error, partly negligence and partly lack of experience, there were definite signs that God had intervened to avert disaster. There appeared to be no physical reason for the tractor to change direction as it crossed that smooth, flat piece of ground above the house. Mazessi certainly didn't steer it as he was sitting frozen to the wheel with his eyes shut and there was no unevenness of the ground to cause it to turn. A woman would no doubt have been killed if it had gone straight ahead. And why did the tractor come to rest at the only place down the whole length of the road where it would not have smashed its nose against the bank, causing severe damage to the machine and injury, or worse, to Mazessi? I believe that God sent an angel to take control of the situation, even though things happened so fast that I doubt anyone had time to ask God for help. I'm certainly glad we have a God who is always there and who loves us and helps us even when the trouble we get into is our own fault. You've been listening to our series, You're Not Alone. Stories told by Alan Sonter that help us to know that God is always watching over us, wherever we are. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3abinaustralia.org.au or give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456. May God bless you and remember, you are not alone. You have been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.